Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Morning, everybody. Welcome to our October seminar for our 2023 virtual HOA Condo Academy. We're going to be talking today about legislative updates and hot topics. Um, As people are joining us on Zoom and Facebook Live, looks like we already have a lot of people joining us, 47 already and counting. I want to just do some introductory remarks. So good morning and welcome to class number 10 of our 2023 virtual HOA and Condo Academy. We teach this HOA and Condo Academy virtually in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed working with and representing associations, HOAs, condominiums, planned communities for almost 27 years. My firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board and I have for many years. So I think I bring an interesting perspective to these virtual classes because of my experience, 27 years uh, being a lawyer for associations, condominiums, planned communities, HOAs. And then also I've served my time as a board member in my community. But before we dive into the meat of this seminar here today, I'd like to start off by getting a feel for who's in, the, who's in attendee, attendance today or in our audience so I can tailor the information to best serve you. So if you're joining us on Zoom, you're going to see on your screen right now a poll with two questions. And if you're joining us on Facebook Live, which I see that some of you are, um, I'm just going to ask you to answer the question in the comment section of Facebook Live. So the first question is, which city do you reside in or which city do you have a connection with an HOA in or condo in in Arizona? And then the second question that we are asking today is... Let us know what your current role is with the association. So are you a board member? Are you a homeowner? Are you a manager, a community manager in our industry? Or are you other, somebody that doesn't fit into that category? Okay, while we're waiting for the poll results to kick in, a couple of thoughts. First, uh, let's talk about what's on today's agenda. So in today's agenda, we're going to talk about the HOA and condo bills that have been signed into law this year in our legislative session. So it's important that you're aware of them and have them on your radar. So we're going to talk about the important aspects of these uh, laws. And then I'm going to give you a handout, which will help you um, navigate the new laws and you can provide those to your board. So everybody's aware of it. And then we're going to talk about the industry's hottest topics right now. You know, as part of that, we're going to kind of get in and out of a lot of different subjects because there's a lot of hot topics that affect our industry. And I want to make sure that we have time to um, talk about them. So some of the hot topics, just to give you just a little sampling, we're going to be talking about rental properties, collection of assessments, water rights, security cameras, fair housing issues, technology issues, security issues, pets, sex offenders, handling media inquiries, removal of directors from office, dealing with difficult owners, dysfunctional boards, and um, also deferred maintenance. So as you can imagine, we have a lot to cover in the next 55 minutes. Before we do that, though, let's go back to our poll results and find out who's here today. So we have a great turnout of people here today. Thanks so much for everybody being here. We have 10% of you from Chandler, 3% from Glendale, 
6% from Goodyear, 12% from Mesa, 7% from Peoria, 25% from Phoenix, 26% from Scottsdale, 7% from Surprise, and 4% from Tevi. So really great sampling of our entire Valley of the Sun here this morning. So great job um, to all the neighborhood services departments for getting the word out. The next question on our poll was, what is your role with the association? So joining us here today, we have 74% who are board members, 6% who are community managers, and 20% who are interested homeowners. It looks like we have over 100 people already on Zoom and more people joining each minute. So welcome to everybody. Okay, let's get right into our topic here today. Don't forget at the end of my prepared comments that I have today, the seminar, we're going to have a question and answer session at the end. And I encourage you to submit your questions via the Q&A box on Zoom or the comment section on Facebook Live. I'll be sure to answer all questions during this session. Just be aware that we only allow one question per participant. Please be sure to make your question really specific because it's hard for me to ask a follow-up question if I don't understand the question when I'm going through the questions at the end of my presentation. Okay, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the Arizona legislature. For those of you who have been joining us throughout all of our classes, which we do these the Neighborhood Services Virtual Atria Academy, the third Tuesday of every month, um, we have been talking about legislative issues in Arizona since January. And this was a very unique legislative session in that it was really long. And there were a lot of bills introduced that pertain to associations. Ultimately, only five bills passed uh, this year, and we're going to be talking a little bit about those five bills, but kind of the bottom line on the legislative session this year was it was very long. There were a number of HOA condo bills introduced, but ultimately, we only got five that you know the governor signed and became law or will become law on October 30th. So really, the first topic that we're going to talk about is um, condominium insurance coverage, and this is House Bill 2251. Um, we're going to be giving you a handout, which is going to give you a deep dive on this topic. But generally speaking, if you're a condominium, this bill only applies to condominiums. It does require some condominiums to have special insurance coverage. It also would give each owner the right to report a loss under the association's property insurance policy. Um, and that's kind of unique in that typically the association board of directors is in charge of making claims on the association's insurance. So now with this new law, each owner would be have the right to report a loss on the association's insurance. So again, that House Bill 2251 applies only to condos. If you want more of a deep dive, click on the link we're going to be sharing on the new legislation. The next bill is House Bill 2298. This applies only to planned communities. And actually, there's a special set of circumstances in which this will apply. So you have to be a planned community, number one. The second requirement is that your roadways have to be dedicated to the public. And then third, your declaration would have had to have been recorded after January 1st, 2015. So for this law to kick in and apply to your association, got to be a planned community, number one. The declaration had to have been recorded after January 1st, 2015. And then lastly, um, the roads in your community would have to be public roadways or dedicated to the public um, another entity. Basically, what happens is if you are in that category of planned communities, you are required to hold a meeting of the membership 
um, to vote on whether or not the association can continue to regulate the roadways in your community. And this needs to be done by a date certain. And so I encourage you, please, to click on the link for more details on this if you're an association that falls under this category. Okay, next bill is House Bill 2301. This applies to condominiums and planned communities. I honestly really don't see this bill coming into play that often. But as we've seen over the past four or five years, we've seen a lot of political bills. And if you are in an HOA or a condominium, this bill would allow the association to prohibit a person who is not accompanied by a unit owner or a resident of the association from entering the association's property if the association restricts vehicular or pedestrian access to you know, encourage signing of a political petition or to encourage signing regarding a proposition or some initiative that they are trying to get passed. So bottom line is, this isn't going to apply very often. It has to be a gated community, number one. So if it's a condo or a planned community, that's a gated community. The association could prohibit somebody from coming in to do political activities unless that person is accompanied by a unit owner or a resident. Okay, next bill, board member removal. This is House Bill 2607. This applies to both planned communities and condominiums. This is a pretty serious bill, so I think everybody needs to be aware of this. The bottom line on this is, is if you don't follow the procedures correctly, after a board removal petition is submitted to the board of directors for a condominium or planned community, there are very serious consequences for the board. And so basically what it does is it adds a deadline to the board to act upon receipt of a petition that calls for removal of a member. Now, we always had a deadline before, like once the petition is submitted to remove the director or directors, what the law previously has said is that you have 30 days, the board has 30 days to notice, call and conduct a board removal meeting or whoever the person is that's being removed. And it's just like kind of an annual meeting, same type of thing. It's meeting of the membership, et cetera. The add-on with this new law is that if the board fails to call notice and hold a special meeting within 30 days after receipt of the petition, the members of the board that are currently serving are deemed removed from office effective midnight on the 31st day. So there's a really serious consequence now that didn't exist in this law prior to this legislative session. So again, if you are a planned community or condominium, after October 30th, 2023, if you get a removal petition for removal of a board member or the entire board, you must act and you must act quickly because under this new law, if you don't call notice and hold that special meeting to remove the board member or board members um, within 30 days after receipt of the petition, the entire board is removed effective midnight on the 31st day. Okay, last bill, Senate Bill 1049 is on flags. I think we've seen a trend of flag bills um, over the past, gosh, 15 years, basically, that I have I mean, I've been doing this 27 years almost. But over the past 15 years, we've seen a major expansion of the uh, types of flags that can be flown in an HOA or in a condominium. And this year, the legislature expanded it even further. Basically, they said that the association, whether you're a plant community or a condominium, cannot ban any historic version of the American flag, such as the Betsy Ross flag. So you can't pass restriction in your CCNRs or in your rules, or if you have something in your CCNRs or your rules that wouldn't allow this, this law will trump that in your documents. So 
Historic versions of the American flag, including the Betsy Ross flag, are now allowable to be flown in condominium and plant communities by owners on their property. If you'd like a deep dive on these, this new legislation, please uh, click on our link that we're going to be providing to you here through Zoom and Facebook Live. Um, you also can find the summary on the homepage of our website. One last thing I want to talk about is Proposition 209. This is something that is not on a lot of people's radars, but it does have some importance that I want to talk about with you. So it was voted on. It was an initiative that was voted on in the state of Arizona, and it was passed. And it, it really wasn't necessarily something that people initially thought applied to businesses such as HOAs and condominiums. However, it does apply. And just a, a brief summary on it is it makes it more difficult for associations to garnish after they obtain a judgment against an owner. And this would only be for judgments that were obtained after December 5th, 2022. But basically, we have to analyze whether or not we are allowed to garnish on a judgment based upon different factors that Proposition 209 um, sets forth, like how much money this person makes. And the percentage that we can garnish is altered as well. So really the impact of Proposition 209 is that it doesn't apply per se to, you know, like board members. This doesn't directly affect you, but this directly affects attorneys that are trying to collect money on behalf of associations. We need to make good decisions when we get a personal judgment against an owner on how we're going to collect on that debt. Um, and we have to factor in if choosing garnishment to garnish their wages or their bank account or the rent, if they have a tenant in the property, if that is a good idea based upon um, the restrictions that are set forth in Prop 209. So just wanted to let you know, our firm is very aware of this proposition and we are factoring that into any decisions we're making on moving forward on garnishments. I believe that my office has shared the legislative update link um, with you. So you have everything you need to be ready to go on October 30th when all of these five new laws go into effect. A couple things, just quick little FYIs. It's holiday decorating season, right? As soon as we start, you know, October, we start to see Halloween decorations go up. And I, I love Halloween. It's one of my favorite holidays. And then we go right into Christmas, which is definitely Christmas and Hanukkah and all the other holidays that are celebrated in December. Really good time for a reminder about holiday decorations and associations. So we're going to be sharing with you um, a holiday decoration policy and some information on that so that you can keep that in your back pocket if you have any problems with over-exuberant holiday decorations in your community. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about our topics today. We have a lot of topics to talk about in the next 45 minutes. And so kind of the game plan for today is I want to give you a sampling of what are the hottest topics that pertain to associations right now. From my perspective, what I want to do is introduce the topic to you. And then I'm going to give you a link to information if you want more information, a deeper dive on the topic here today. That way we cover a lot of material number one. And number two, I give you an avenue so that you can ask for more information or look for more information through the links that we have. We will be providing with you here today. So hot topics, it's going to be quick in, quick out on the topics. And then we'll give you a link to where you can go to find more information if it's something that directly applies to your association. 
So first thing I want to start out talking about is green initiatives, because um, this is definitely a hot topic in Arizona, and we're going to be talking about um, water restrictions later. But just one thing I wanted to mention, by green initiatives, I mean initiatives that are being set in place by our legislature or our state to help have something where we are not overusing water, especially with the water restrictions that we have in place and that we're using the sun for electricity, et cetera. So I just want to mention two quick things. Number one, last year there was a bill passed that says that artificial turf associations cannot prohibit artificial turf on an owner's property as long as the association doesn't maintain that area. We have done a lot of talking about this last year. If you go to our legislative update from 2022, you're going to get a deep dive on that topic but it's something that you need to be aware of if you are a planned community and you have an owner that wants to put in artificial turf before you would ever deny that you want to make sure that you reach out to your attorney and talk about it because the law is protective of that and if it's property their property and and they maintain this area they are allowed under the law to convert that to artificial turf the second one i want to talk about is solar energy devices I had lots of discussions with associations over the past 27 years about solar laws in Arizona. Another green initiative, right? The encouraging people to use solar energy to heat their pools or heat their water within their homes. One really important thing to remember, if you are an HOA or even a condominium, associations cannot effectively prohibit the use of solar energy devices. Bottom line, if your association receives an application for a solar energy device to be installed on that owner's property and the board wants to deny it or the board wants to find an alternate location or a different type of solar energy device that they think will be less intrusive or prettier to look at, make sure you're reaching out to your legal counsel because associations cannot effectively prohibit solar energy devices. And that is really broadly defined by the courts. The Garden Lakes case in Arizona, you know, said that we can't make it more expensive. We can't make it more difficult for somebody to install solar. We can't make them install solar that's going to decrease efficiency. So you really want to do um, your due diligence if you plan to deny a solar energy device application. Okay, let's move on from green initiatives and talk a little bit about rental properties. So over the past, gosh, six years, we've done a lot talking about rental properties because of the large influx of Airbnbs and HomeAway and short-term rental policies. It's become something that is very common for people to visit Arizona and want to stay in a property for a short period of time. And they want the amenities of an HOA or a condominium. You know, they want to have a full kitchen and and maybe it's more economical for them than staying in a hotel. What I want to talk a little bit about on rental properties is that a couple of things that are important to know. Well, first, how rental properties should be handled in your association first. So you need to look at what your CCNRs say. Do they prohibit rentals altogether? If so, that's enforceable. Do they put a minimum time period for the rental? such as rentals must be 30-day minimum you know, rental time period? Or do they say nothing? There's a 30-day minimum rental time period that's enforceable by the association. If your documents, such as your CCNR, say nothing about rentals, then it's considered that it's allowed. Even if you have a provision in your documents that says that you can't run businesses out of your home, Arizona law allows you to rent your property if your documents don't prohibit it, 
And so you need to be aware of that as an association. That's a common question that I get. Another thing you need to be aware of is that landlords need to register their properties with the county and with the city that you live in. So if you know that there is a property in your community that is being used as a rental, you can go to the Maricopa County or your county assessor's website and you can look to see if this, you type in the address and you can look to see if the property is characterized as a rental property. If it is not listed as a rental property, it has a little key that is right on the parcel number showing that it is a rental property. You can snitch on them and call the county and the city that you live in and say that this is a rental property and it's not being registered as such and ask them to look into it. They will look into it for sure because they're losing tax revenue every time that property is being rented. A couple of things to know, um, we can ask for certain information from a owner regarding a rental property. And we have a great cheat sheet that kind of goes into this in detail that we're going to be sharing with you. But basically, we can ask for a few categories of information, like the name and contact information for any adults that are occupying the unit, how long the lease is, including the start and end date, um, a description of the tenant's license plate numbers and the tenant's vehicles. And if you're a 55 and over community, you can ask for age verification. We also can charge a fee for registering each short-term or long-term rental, and that's $25 per rental. Now, if the person is, you know, has a year lease and then they just renew it, we can't charge that $25 a second time. If the owner doesn't provide all this rental information and pay the $25 fee, we can charge a $15 late fee for not doing that. Some things that associations cannot do that I think it's important that you hear from me, um, we cannot um, ask the owner for the tenant's rental application. We cannot force the owner to provide us with the credit report or the tenant. We cannot ask for a copy of the lease agreement and make them give it to us. And any other person information that's not covered by the three categories or the fourth category if you're 55 and over community that we just talked about. You know, a very common question that we get is how do we handle violations by owners who are violating our rental policies? reach out to our firm or your attorney. There's lots of different remedies that we have from fining, from contacting Airbnb or HomeAway or whatever organization um, that is leasing the property and letting them know that, hey, this person is violating our restrictions. Please do not post this on your website as a day or nightly rental. We can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate, file a complaint there and have a hearing in front of an administrative law judge regarding the uh, violation of the rental policies. We can go to superior court and get an injunction against the owner for violating our rental policies. So there's lots of different options that you have. And you know, a good starting point would be to reach out to our firm or your attorney to talk about how we can best handle this owner that's violating the rental policies in your community. We have a great cheat sheet on this on how to effectively work with rental properties, which we have shared with you already, or we will be sharing with you soon. That's a great resource and a deep dive on how to effectively manage rental properties. Okay, next question. Delinquencies. Owners who don't pay their assessments or other amounts that are owed to the association. You know, we're starting to see an uptick in owners that are not paying assessments in a timely manner. It's been really interesting since the pandemic. We were just kind of waiting in our firm for the other shoe to drop. But because of so much federal funding and um, a lot of people not having to pay their mortgages, 
for many months, there has not been that much of an increase in the number of delinquencies in community associations, HOAs, plant communities, until really, I would say, about the past nine months to a year. So now we're starting to see an uptick in the number of delinquencies. And we just wanted to go over this as a hot topic with you because we're starting to see a trend. And the trend is, is that owners are more owners in your communities are not paying their assessments in a timely manner. So we want to go over just a quick little 411 on what should you, you should be doing if you have that problem. Okay. Number one, as a board member, you should be looking at your delinquency list every month. And if you're seeing that owners that are more than, you know, 60 days delinquent in the payment of assessments, you should be giving your management company or your treasurer direction on how to handle it. One of the things is the most important things that I'd like to stress on collecting delinquent assessments from owners is the sooner you get on top of collecting that debt, the better the outcome. So for example, if you wait five years or six years to collect unpaid assessments, you know, an owner doesn't pay for five years or six years, it's going to be significantly harder to get that owner to pay versus you're right on top of them at 60 or 90 days and contacting them, putting a lien on their property, turning it over to the association's attorney to send a demand letter. The faster that you act on delinquencies, the more likely it is that you're going to get the money paid by the owner. And the more likely it is that they're not going to do it again because they realize that there are consequences for not paying their assessments in a timely manner. A couple of things to think about, make sure you're charging late fees. Um, the associations that don't charge late fees, there's no incentive for an owner to not pay in a timely manner. Another thing to think about is when it gets to the point where the matter is turned over to your association's attorney to collect the debt from an owner, and hopefully you're doing that early in the process. We still, obviously, we still take delinquencies when they're much later in the process, but you know, there's a six-year statute of limitations. So we, we don't like to see getting these files five, six years into it because you know, we may not be able to collect all of the debt based upon the statute of limitations. Okay, so what am I thinking when our firm is turned over a file from an association regarding a delinquency? So what our firm is thinking is we are doing due diligence on the front end to figure out how we can get the money. And this could be, you know, maybe the board tells us that the owners passed away. It could be finding, you know, the heirs or finding out what's going to happen to the property or dealing with the reverse mortgage company, trying to get the debt paid. If the owner is still living in the property and is not deceased, we do a full 360 credit evaluation of the owner to determine how are we going to get the money from them. We do that before we spend any money chasing after the owner, trying to get them to pay. So basically, we give a credit snapshot back to the board after doing some research. And these are the things that we find out about the owner. Number one, are they employed? Um, number two, do they have a mortgage or deed of trust on the property? How much is it? Are they paying it? Is there a notice of trustee sale saying that they're not paying it? How much is the property worth? Do they have other debts that are recorded and available online that we're seeing? Do, that, do they have unpaid credit card bills? Do they have other people suing them? Is there a master association for your association? Are they also filing liens, reporting liens? Basically, we come back to you with a snapshot of, okay, here's this person's credit and here's our recommendation to get the money. Basically, if the owner has equity in the property, so let's say that the property is worth $300,000 and maybe they have only a $75,000 mortgage on the property or deed of trust on the property. 
there's a lot of equity there. There's $225,000 of equity there. When we see that, we're going to be encouraging the board to foreclose on the property because A, the owner is never going to let that equity you know, get thrown away and they're going to pay up. Or if they don't pay up, this is going to go to a trustee sale after going through the foreclosure pro- or a sheriff sale after going through the foreclosure process and an investor is going to come in and buy this and we're going to get made whole. Of course, in Arizona, there are some restrictions on when we can foreclose. And those restrictions are that the assessment has to be one year delinquent or it has to have $1,200 owed in assessments only. So really the bottom line on delinquencies is get on them early, do your credit evaluation of the owner so you come up with a good plan to get them to pay based upon you know what their credit looks like. Moving on to the next topic, we're going to talk about, and we have a couple of cheat sheets just so you know that we've already shared with you um, that give you a deep dive. You can find these cheat sheets on our webpage too. One is on effective collection of delinquent assessments, and then another one is on secrets to collecting delinquent assessments. Okay, next topic, water rights. I think we're hearing about this all the time in Arizona, seeing newspaper articles. It's on the live news almost every week. You know, the Arizona Department of Water Resources has declared a goal of sustainable water supplies by 2030 in Arizona. And what does that mean? It means that there's going to be major water restrictions and reductions for associations in the coming years. And the Arizona Department of Water Resources has created management plans designed to hold the state accountable for water usage. And there's been a total of five plans that were to be enacted over five decades. It started in 1980. You know, now we're in 2023, almost 2024. So we're really getting close to that end date of 2030. Currently, we're in that fourth management plan. And that started in January of 2023. Basically, what this transition is going to require for associations is some small water reductions for communities that have 10 or more acres of turf. If you're one of those associations that has 10 or more acres of turf, like as common areas, you have likely already been contacted by the Arizona Department of Water Resources, and you hopefully already have some water reduction plans in place. Um, We're going to be sharing with you what the uh, fourth management plan is with the Arizona Department of Water Resources. We encourage associations to become familiar with this because this is something that is going to affect your association. The biggest water reductions are going to come with the fifth management plan, which is set to commence in 2025 or 2026. And this is going to reduce water allotments further. And so these restrictions are going to likely force many associations to convert from turf to desert landscaping in you know, larger portions of your property. And we've got a couple of links that we're going to be sharing with you on the differences between the fourth plan, which we're in right now, and the fifth plan. I encourage you to take a look at it. What are some things that your association can do? There are water management companies now that are actively reaching out to associations. I was at an annual meeting recently and a water company came in, a water management company came in and gave a presentation on how this particular large master plan community could reduce water hungry turf and reduce overall water consumption. Um, It can be a win-win because we all know water is a huge expense in most associations budgets. So Bringing in a consultant like this could be you know, a win-win for your association in that they're showing you how to reduce future water expenses 
and still comply with this new um, fourth and fifth management plans that are being implemented um, in Arizona. If anybody wants the name of one of those water conservation companies, please reach out to me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com, and I'd be happy to share the name of the company um, that I heard gave give a really good presentation on this topic. Start talking now with residents in your community at your annual meeting, maybe in your newsletter, about future water challenges and these plans so that they're understanding and aware of why you're converting the turf to desert landscaping. And then really start thinking about ways that you can reduce water usage in your community by transitioning to desert or desert adapted plans. Check to see if your city or town has any programs or grants to help your association. I was speaking with a, a city yesterday, representative of the Neighborhood Services Department, and this person specifically told me that they have grant money for associations to be used for water conservation efforts. Um, and I mean, what a great opportunity. You know, this this particular city had, you know, like $75,000 that they would be giving out grants to HOEs and plant communities and condominiums to do this. So reach out to your cities, find out what sort of programs they have, because this is just dollars that you can use that are free after you go through their grant process, if you're approved, to convert your turf to desert landscaping to comply with these management plans. For more information on water rights, you also can visit the Arizona Department of Water Resources website, and we're going to be sharing that link with you shortly. Okay, now we're just going to do some quick in-out, in-and-out topics that are less meaty than the first few that we've talked about here today. The first topic I'm going to talk about is board removal. And how do you handle a petition once you get in a board removal petition? We talked a little bit at the beginning of this presentation about the new law that's going into effect on October 30th. And that new law says that if you don't act within 30 days and have notice and actually conduct a removal meeting, that the entire board is removed on the 31st day. So obviously, that's a pretty serious consequence. So what I'd like to do is we're going to be sharing with you some information that our firm has written about the process of the board removal process and what the law says about it in Arizona, which trumps your association documents. I want you to be aware of this resource in case your association ever is presented a board removal petition. Reach out to my law firm or your legal counsel when that happens, like the first day you get it. The board receives the board removal petition signed by owners. That is the time to act, especially in light of this law. And we're going to be sharing with you a handout with specifics on how you are required to comply with this particular law. Most important thing you need to know, you have to notice, conduct your special meeting of the membership to vote on the removal of the board member within 30 days of getting that application. Another just practice pointer from being in the trenches for 27 years Usually, before you get that removal petition, you hear about it as a board. Somebody will come to a meeting and say, somebody knocked on my door this weekend and wanted me to sign something, calling to hold the board accountable and remove them for you know some things that they've done. When your board hears that, what should you be thinking? You should be thinking, we need to have a town hall meeting to talk through grievances and air why people are upset because removal meetings are really expensive. I attended one last night, in fact. And why are they expensive? Because you need to have your lawyer involved. Usually they are contentious and people start fighting. 
And that, you know, that makes you have to have your lawyer involved more and lawyers, as we all know, are expensive. So try to avert that by getting out to your homeowners right away, have a town hall meeting on Zoom or in person and talk about what the problems are. People will be less likely to sign a removal petition if the board is listening and understanding that people are unhappy. Okay, next hot topic, conflict resolution. Honestly, conflicts keep the lights on in my law firm, right? Because when people are fighting, the law firm typically is becoming more involved to handle a difficult owner or maybe the board fighting. One thing that we try to preach to uh, boards that we work with and to anybody who is attending our classes is you really have to have a plan when there's conflict in your associations. And you're going to have difficult personalities. That is part of your job serving on the board. It's a part of my job serving on my board that I don't like. It's my least favorite job, actually, of being on the board is having to manage people who don't get along or who are just difficult and just create a lot of problems for our community. We have a great cheat sheet on this topic for you. It's called How to Handle Difficult People. I really recommend that you take a look at it, give you specific strategies on how you can manage fights between the board and how you can manage owners who either are difficult and that they're not following your documents or they're extremely critical in an unfounded way about your board or maybe neighbor to neighbor disputes. Kind of one of the most important things I would say is reach out to our firm or your legal counsel if you're in a situation where Conflicts are boiling over to the point that, you know, it's upsetting you as a board member. Reach out to us and we can give you advice. We have successfully handled that many times in the past. Reach out to whoever your legal counsel is and talk about it because oftentimes, you know, spending a penny on the front end will save you a lot of money on the back end. So we'll help you come up with strategies on how to deal with the difficult owner or infighting on your board. Most of the time, it involves good communication. And if the person has mental illness, how to deal with that, how to manage somebody who is so difficult that and unreasonable that you know we have really no choice but tell them, you know, no contact with the board, you only can contact the attorney, et cetera. But we give some great tips in this difficult personality, how to deal with difficult personality, Chi Chi. And we are sharing that with you. Also, if your board is dysfunctional. New hot topic, right? Also something that keeps the lights on at our firm. How do we handle dysfunction within a board? Well, what we typically recommend is that everybody start attending classes like this because they're free. And it helps everybody better understand what your role and responsibility is serving on the board and what the laws are that you need to comply with. If you have board members that refuse to spend their personal time doing classes like this, you can always share Um, our videos with them. Every class that we teach is the video is saved. It's placed on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. You can go to exactly the portion of the seminar that you want your board to hear, and you can save that two minutes or whatever, and then replay it for the board in a clip and, you know, saved as an attachment and an email. So education helps with dysfunctional boards. Another form of education is one-on-one direct. We go in and help dysfunctional boards in a a class setting where we call it a boot camp. We come in, we have a specific agenda in terms of these are the things that after listening to the parties and hearing about the dysfunction, these are the things that we think your board needs to be aware of under the law and under your documents. 
And these are our suggestions on how to better manage the dysfunction on your board. And also we ha- opened up for you know the last part of it, maybe the last half hour. Um, and it's short, it's not long, maybe an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. The last half hour is for questions and for airing grievances. And I have never come out of a boot camp feeling that that boot camp didn't significantly help the board act in a more reasonable manner, a more functioning manner. So I really highly recommend that if you currently are on a board and it's just totally dysfunctional, you can't get anything done, everybody's fighting, bring in myself or bring in your legal counsel to do a boot camp to try to resolve these issues. Okay, last hot topic, and before this is a quick one, then we're going to go back to a few more hot topics, is talking about deferred maintenance and lack of reserves. This is a huge hot topic. Associations that maybe haven't kept up with the times, they haven't kept up with the maintenance, they haven't raised their dues or their assessments enough to keep up with inflation, inflation or the type of maintenance that's needed over time in your community. Maybe you haven't fully funded your reserve. And because of that, you don't have time. You don't have the money to fix your roofs. How do we pivot? What do we do? We have some a great cheat sheet on reserves and the importance of a reserve study. So I'm encouraging you to take a look at that. We're going to be sharing that with you. Also, reach out to your trusted advisors, you know, your reserve company, your management company, your accountant, your attorney, and talk about how can we move forward in a situation where we have a ton of deferred maintenance and no money. And all of us have a lot of experience in helping associations manage that. And sometimes that goes hand in hand with dysfunction on the board. Maybe you have people that think everything's great and they think it's fine to chain up the tennis courts when they become, you know, not maintain that people can't even play there safely anymore. And that's not okay. You have a responsibility to maintain your common areas and you can't just be shutting things down permanently because you don't have the money to fix them. Deferred maintenance, lack of reserves, the two quick suggestions on that. Check out our cheat sheet on reserve studies. Reach out to your trusted advisors to help you with that difficult situation. Okay, next hot topic, security cameras. A lot of associations are investing in security cameras. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this. Some of these security cameras are awesome. It allows you to access security footage on from a cell phone in an office setting, you know, with a multi-screen view of all the cameras that are set around your neighborhood. Remember a few things. So individual homeowners and condominium owners have a right to install security cameras, surveillance cameras on their own property. We're seeing a lot of ring cameras so that packages that are delivered, you're aware of when they come. One thing you want to remember to remind the owners of is that if you're installing security cameras on your property, that you are not pointing them in such a way that you're invading somebody else's privacy. So you can't be having that camera videotaping inside the neighbor's kitchen or whatever. If you're proving a security camera as part of an architecture review or you're getting a complaint from a neighbor about a security camera, just make sure that you're reminding the owner of the camera that they must only have it on their property. Also, we're starting to see questions from associations about police enforcement wanting to install camera systems in your community um, and then being able to access those cameras in the event of a serious emergency. I mean, this is kind of an emerging topic that we've had this question now from several associations where um, they're wondering, hey, is this something that we should do? Is this a good idea? 
So if you are contacted by police or authorities in your city or town, it's something you definitely should consider. You know, I have looked into the issue extensively. We're going to be talking about this in an upcoming blog. And I think it can be something that can be a win-win for both the association and the city or town that is trying to make everything safer for everybody. Next topic that we're going to be talking about is diversity and inclusion. Recently, CAI put out a publication and CAI, just so for some of you who may not be familiar with it, it's the Community Associations Institute. It's a national think tank that provides free education, some free education and some education they have to pay for to help associations run more effectively. National Group, they put out this really great white sheet on how to you know, make diversity and equity inclusion a priority in community associations. So we're going to be sharing this with you right now. According to the Community Associations Institute, it's interesting to note that the most common type of discrimination claims that are made under the Fair Housing Act, which is a federal law that applies to condominiums and planned communities, is based upon ethnicity. And it often happens when we have neighbor-to-neighbor disputes, or maybe somebody feels that they're being discriminated against by the association because they're getting violation letters. Oftentimes, there just needs to be some training for the board so that they know how to handle these situations. We have a great cheat sheet on this topic that talks about federal laws specifically the Fair Housing Act, um, and just reminds associations that we can't do anything to discriminate against any owner or resident in an association. And it gives you some tips on how to handle um, situations between neighbors, you know, neighbor-to-neighbor disputes, and when we may need to get involved if there's a neighbor-to-neighbor dispute and somebody's claiming that they're being discriminated against. The association may have a responsibility to step in and intervening, or at least write some letters to both owners regarding the situation to make sure that the association doesn't have any liability. In conclusion on this, it's a hot topic right now. Um, if you have an owner who is saying to you, I am being discriminated against either by the association or owner to owner dispute, that's something that you need to escalate to our firm or your association's attorney to talk about Is this situation something that could turn into a lawsuit? Do we need to notify our insurance company? What types of steps can we take to limit our liability for the association? Okay, next hot topic is technology use. As technology changes, it makes things easier for associations to conduct business. A couple of things that you should be aware of. Arizona law allows members to vote at meetings of the membership by online voting. And a lot of associations are using companies to handle all voting aspects of their annual meeting or CCNR amendments. So just wanted you to be aware that that's something that is allowable under Arizona law. So online voting. Of course, if somebody doesn't have a computer or doesn't want to online vote, there has to be an alternate method for them to obtain a ballot and then just mail the ballot in. Associations using a website or communication, another type of technology websites, Facebook, Instagram, all of these different communication aspects. Nextdoor is another example. Just the importance of first on the association's website, having all the information at the owner's fingertips that they may need, like architectural applications, the association's documents, a way for them to look up their, how much they owe the association. A lot of this is going to need to be password protected. Sometimes we see bang-ups and problems with board members making comments on Facebook or Instagram that 
maybe don't represent the rest of the board or maybe aren't professional. So just being aware of having a policy in place for your association about, okay, this is how we handle social media. And, you know, we typically, what I recommend to boards is be really careful if you're making a comment on social media about something, it's perceived as a comment of the board if, if you're a board member. So be really careful about that. So we have a great cheat sheet on um, technology that we're going to be sharing with you. Um, the last kind of technology thing would be, um, or last two would be, you know, using Zoom or uh, virtual meetings to have your board meetings. I would say that 95 to 98% of my meetings are now virtual with boards. I very rarely personally attend board meetings anymore because of a number of reasons. Most boards are using virtual meetings now exclusively for their board meetings. They don't want to pay the attorney for the travel time. So they want the attorney to come in person or virtually versus in person. So it saves them money. But this is something that is happening everywhere. So it's technology use. We have a cheat sheet on conducting virtual meetings on our webpage if you want more information on that. The last thing I'm going to talk about is using email for board decisions. Be really careful about that because that likely violates open meeting law. So all decisions of your board where a majority of the board is making, you know, or a quorum of the board is making decisions needs to be done during the open board meeting. Avoid using email to make board decisions unless it's an emergency. And really, there are very few emergencies that would fall into that category where you have to go around having an open meeting. Next topic that we're going to be talking about is pets. So we have a great cheat sheet on this. It's called Everything You Need to Know About Pets in Your Association. Talks about what kind of rules you can have for pets. So check out that cheat sheet. Um, Also, we want to talk about assistance animals. So if you have an association where you don't allow pets, like sometimes in condominiums, and somebody wants an emotional support pet, or they maybe require a service animal, There are special requirements that you have to follow and you may have to allow that even though your documents don't allow having a pet, maybe. The federal law trumps that and you may have to allow the pet in that circumstance. So I encourage you to take a peek at that cheat sheet that we're going to be sharing with you on pets. Also take a peek at our fair housing cheat sheet that talks about the Fair Housing Act, which that would fall under if somebody wants a reasonable accommodation under the Fair Housing Act. Okay, let's talk a little bit about parking issues. So parking is always a big issue. Electric vehicles, charging stations, also a very big issue. Really the best way to handle parking issues, check your documents. Can you enforce parking on the streets? Who's going to do the documentation on this? Are you going to hire a third party? Is it going to be complaint-based only? What are your enforcement options? Can we send letters? Can we fine? Can we tow? Can we put a boot on the wheel? Can we hire a company to come in and patrol between midnight and 6 a.m. every day? Can we put sticky stickers on the driver's window for violating the parking rules? Can we file a lawsuit? Can we go to the ADRE on this issue? Parking has a lot of aspects to it, and it, it typically is something that fires people up and is a problem that the board has to deal with. And so I would encourage you, if you are having a parking issue, reach out to your trusted advisors, your management company, our firm, your lawyer, and we can give you a solution on how to best handle that. Electrical vehicle charging stations, very hot topic right now for associations, especially condos. Is this something that we have to put in? 
Do we have to allow an owner to install one on the common areas? Probably not, but if they want to put one in their parking area that is their exclusive use area, we probably do have to allow that. We have a great blog on this topic, which we're going to be sharing with you, and we'll continue to talk about this as we navigate electric cars, which is something I think that we all can recognize is going to be a problem in the future that we need to have a plan in place for. So check out our blog on this topic if this is something that is of interest to your association. Our next topic is going to be sex offenders and an association. This is just a quick topic on this. If you have a sex offender that moves into your association, how does the association handle it? Typically, you get a notification from the parole officer or from the police um, or sheriff saying that a sex offender has moved into your association. What we recommend is that you provide that exact notice to your owners so that they are aware that the situation has occurred. You want to make sure that you tell people that there can be you know, no derogatory actions that are taken against this resident who's a sex offender that's moving in. Basically, the association is just notifying them so that they can be aware of their surroundings and aware of the situation. Next and last topic is dealing with the media. If you get into a situation where your board is being thrown into a media storm, we have a great cheat sheet on this. It's called How to Deal with the Media. You know, what you want to do if you're involved in a story. Now, I'm just going to mention this. Usually when the media is writing a story about HOAs or condos, it's not going to portray you in the best light. So you want to be very careful how this is handled. And what we recommend is reach out to your trusted advisors, your attorney. Our firm has helped many associations navigate this. Really, sometimes the best response is no response, because no matter what you say to the media, it usually is portrayed in a negative light. And without both sides of the story, often the media will not even run the story if they don't have, you know, the homeowner and the association's position. If you are going to have somebody talk on behalf of the association, designate one person with a script as to what they can say and determine after talking with your legal counsel how exactly you're going to handle it. Okay, so we have perfect timing. Wow, we've been through a lot of topics. We have 12 questions today um, that we're going to be answering. We had over 120 attendees on Zoom today. That is amazing. Thank you so much for being here. So let's get right into our questions. The first one is, who enforces Arizona state statutes? Our association fine policy is in conflict. It allows 21 days to respond to the violation, but assesses fines after 14 days first part of that is who enforces the state statutes. So if the association is seeing a violation and they can enforce the violation either by going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and making a claim for an administrative law judge to hear the matter or going to superior court to have a judge make a decision on it or recording a lien, you know, we have that right. But also homeowners have that right. If they're not happy with how, thing is, how things are being run according to what the law says associations are required to do, the association definitely has that right to. The association owner definitely has that right to sue the association, go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate to have an administrative law judge look at the situation. Um, or even really just contact the board and say, hey, I think you're violating the law and see what kind of a response you get. Okay, our association fine policy is in conflict. Um, it's hard for me to comment on it without actually seeing it. Um, I know that 
you're saying that you have 21 days to respond to the violation, but that fines are imposed after 14 days. I haven't seen it. There is a law that gives an owner 21 days to respond on violations, but there's also a law that set and there's a specific procedure to do that whereby they have to put it in, you know, a certified letter and have that mailed certified mail return receipt requested. But as long as the board is uh, has complied with that law and already given all the information regarding the violation, often they've already provided the 21 days to you know give the information about the violation that the law requires. And if they give notice and opportunity to be heard, they could assess the fine after 14 days if the timing on that is right. So if the letter, the initial letter complies with all aspects of the violation letter that you're required to have under the law. You give the owner notice and an opportunity to be heard, and then you levy the fine, you know, on the 14th day after the notice and opportunity to be heard, it could be okay. I haven't seen your fine policy, so it's hard for me to comment on that. I agree. It does sound like there's a conflict. I think you need to look into that a little more, but there would be a workaround on that if they structured it right. Okay. The second question here is talking about the beneficial ownership information reporting program of the Corporate Transparency Act. This is actually kind of a a hot topic right now among community association attorneys. I've discussed this with a number of different groups that I belong to. So we're all talking about, does the Corporate Transparency Act apply to associations or not? So we know that this all applies to the question saying this all applies to corporations with less than 5 million in assets, fewer than 20 employees. You're making the statement that you think community associations are not exempt and reporting requirements are going to be implemented January 1st, 2024 with a January 2025 deadline. You're wondering, you know, how is this going to work with associations, right? First, you, you indicated in your question, you have a very long question, so I had to kind of summarize it, that Community Associations Institute, that national think tank that I told you about, has taken the position that this act was not intended to apply to community associations and is lobbying for an exemption. I agree with that position. I don't think that this is something that was intended to apply to HOAs and condominiums in Arizona or any other state. A lot of this deals with terrorism money and is notifying people, corporate directors, so that the federal government can keep track of it. I just don't think that this is something that ultimately is going to be determined as being something that applies to as far of a reach as a nonprofit HOA or condo board in Arizona. But I agree right now, the way it's written, it does appear to apply, but stay tuned because I'm not sure that by January 2025, it will not have been clarified by our federal government. Okay, question three. Can you comment on the mandatory federal registration of Arizona community associations in 2024? So that's the exact same question as number two, talking about the Corporate Transparency Act. Just again, in conclusion, I think that by the time that the reporting requirements go into place um, with the January 2025 deadline, that this is something that is ultimately going to be clarified that doesn't apply to associations. So stay tuned. CAI, which is the national think tank that represents millions of owners and associations, they are working diligently to try to get this clarified so that it doesn't apply to associations. But stay tuned. Promise you, it's going to be a hot topic that we're talking about in 2024. 
And we don't have any actual reporting requirements until January 1st, 2025. So try not to get too overly concerned and upset about it because it's not totally done, right? There's probably going to be some clarification legislation on this. And we're not the only industry. Many other industries are also asking for clarification. So it's very likely going to happen in 2024. Okay, next question, number four. We are a self-managed HOA. What voting methods would you suggest we use to elect new board members? Who should oversee the collection and the counting of the ballots? Is it acceptable for the ballots to be collected at a board member's home? So lots of questions regarding annual meeting, election of board members, and you're self-managed, so you're trying to do it all on your own. Okay, so what voting method would I suggest? I would suggest using absentee ballots and send those out in advance of the meeting. They have to be sent at least seven days, I believe, before the meeting. It's either seven or 10 days before the meeting. So factor that in. I Who should oversee the collection and counting? If you are worried about it going to a board member or there's been a concern about that, send it to your CPA, send it to your attorney. We frequently collect ballots on behalf of associations and count them for them. And that is you know, something that we can do. Is it acceptable to have them go to a board member's home? It's unusual, I would say, but when you're self-managed, you know, what are you going to do? You don't have a PO box for your association. That may be the only option. What I would recommend if it does go to a board member's home is that you don't open them until the night of the meeting and then have independent persons who are not running for the board count them. Next question, number five. Does our HOA need to list the names of the members of the architectural committee or can the architectural committee remain confidential? Our board would like the names to be confidential because historically, homeowners have harassed them to the point where they have dropped out. If their names are not confidential, we will not have a committee. Our documents do not specify anything on this. Our management has told us that legally their names cannot be confidential. Your management company, they can't be confidential for a number of reasons. Number one, you know, we have to designate these people every year as the architectural committee, right? And so the minutes should reflect who's on the architectural committee. Secondly, there should be minutes of these architectural meetings or minutes of their decisions. And people have a right to know who's on the architectural committee. So I 100% agree if there's litigation, it's going to come out who's on the architectural committee. So I 100% agree they cannot be kept confidential. Okay, next question. Number six, our bylaws state that the board president needs to have served on the board for one year. What do we do if no board member qualifies? That's really a weird provision to have in your bylaws. You may want to amend that and look at how to amend your bylaws and take that out because I've been doing this a long time, almost 27 years. And from my perspective, that's a weird requirement. I don't see that very often. In fact, I hardly ever see that, maybe like less than a handful in 27 years. So what do we do if no board member qualifies? So amend your documents, you know, would be one thing or just move forward because if, if no one qualifies, what are you going to do, right? I mean, you can't bring in somebody else. I suppose in theory, you could bring somebody back to the board, but I don't know exactly how this is worded. But I would just move forward on it and amend your bylaws because that provision seems something that is not realistic and not very common in our industry. Okay, question seven. What are your thoughts on election buddy e-voting for board annual elections? A postcard was emailed once with voting instructions with Zoom annual meeting. I'm okay with this. I think that there should be more than one communication though. So if your board is going to be using e-voting, 
I think that there should be a publicity blitz that, okay, this is how our annual meeting is going to be conducted this year. It should be on your website. It should be in several communications to your owners. You should be talking about it at board meetings. There should be follow-up with people who haven't voted prior to the vote being taken taking place. My experience with e-voting using companies that work with HOAs and condominiums for e-voting is very positive. Like we have a way higher turnout than we have without e-voting. Now recognize, like I said earlier in the presentation, if you don't, if people don't want to participate in e-voting, that's okay. Give them a backdoor where they can request a ballot and vote that way. Okay, next question, number eight. If the CCNRs are silent on an issue, does the board have the right to set the rules? That's really hard for me to answer because I don't know what your CCNRs say about your rulemaking authority. Is it broad? Does it allow you to make a rule on this particular issue? Generally speaking, I'm going to have to give you a general answer. So if your documents are silent on it, absent broad rulemaking authority by the board, you probably can't pass a rule, cannot pass a rule on something. But if you have broad rulemaking authority, check with your attorney to see if that's something that you can pass a rule on to supplement what the CCNRs say, because it's not in the CCNRs, but it's within the realm of the broad rulemaking authority. Okay, question number nine. If a family member rents a property, is this handled the same way as a rental with the county and with the HOA? That is a good question. You have the owner, landlord, saying, well, it's just my family member staying here, right? If money is being exchanged, this is considered a rental that they would need to register with the county and the city, and they would have to pay the $25 fee that we talked about earlier in the presentation set up in the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act. Lots of times, though, when it's a family member, they just say there's no money being exchanged, and it's really hard to prove there is money being exchanged. So it's kind of a pickle for the association. Question number 10. What is the process for filing a lien on a property owner for legal fees attached to HOA ARB violations? I think maybe that'd be like HOA, I think it's Airbnb violations, what they mean. So we can only record a lien on a property in Arizona in a condominium in a plant community if the owner owes past due assessments, legal fees incurred regarding the past due assessment, collection costs regarding the past due assessment, or late fees. So our firm, because the state law doesn't allow us to do this, we do not record liens on a property for a violation fines that may be incurred for renting their property as an Airbnb in violation of the association's documents. We're not leaning for that. We can only lean, like I said, for assessment-related legal fees, collection costs, late fees, and the actual assessments that are owed. Okay, next question. What is the property? Let's see. Next question, number 11. Can we amend the CCNRs for short term rentals? How do we factor in this hallway case? You know, that was decided in 2022. Okay, really great, great question. So if you look at our cheat sheet on rentals, which we shared with you earlier in this presentation today, we talk about the fact that state law was amended in several years ago. And it said that. If an association wants to implement a rental restriction, they need to place it in the association's CCNRs through an amendment, right? So we have state law, statutory law saying, if you want to implement a rental restriction, you got to amend your CCNRs to do that. Okay. And that law was passed, I don't know, five or six years ago. 
Now we fast forward to 2022 and the Colway case is decided by an appellate court in Arizona. And it basically says that any amendments that we do have to be foreseeable and reasonable and the court can use a blue pencil and strike through anything that they don't think is reasonable and foreseeable. And so we're balancing this, right? So it appears from the Colway case that like, hey, doing amendments that aren't reasonable and foreseeable, that's problematic under this case. But then we've got this state law that says, hey, if you want to implement rental restrictions, you have the right to amend your CCNRs to do it. It's a gray area. That's the bottom line. It's a gray area. So some associations are moving forward with it, knowing the risks that they could be sued under the ruling in Solway. The appellate courts in Arizona haven't ruled on this yet. You know, we're cautiously proceeding on these. And if your association wants to do this, reach out to me. We'll show you how we're cautiously proceeding to limit liability and to make sure we don't get sued. So one way to do it is to grandfather so that it only applies to new owners and the new owners can't sue us because they, you know, purchased knowing that there was no rentals or whatever the situation is. And so there are ways to do it cautiously. It's just you got to evaluate it and learn about the risks. Okay, next question, number 12. Can you remove the board if it is owned by the builder? It sounds to me like you're under a declarant-controlled board. Unfortunately, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to remove a developer-controlled board. What I would recommend is for you to take a peek at our cheat sheet on construction defects and issues with developers that we have on our website and take a peek at that because it sounds to me like you've got developer issues, right? That's why you want to remove the developer board. So checking out that cheat sheet is going to give you some suggestions on where the most common problems with the developer and what you can do as a homeowner waiting for the developers to leave, right? And to get off the board and turn it over to the association's owners to run the board. I think the name of the cheat sheet is transition from owner, from developer to owner control. So bottom line is you likely cannot remove the developer from the board and you've got to come up with your strategy. You may need to you know, have a, the group of like-minded owners consolidate and form a group to try to hire your own lawyer to go after the developer for any problems that they may be causing. Okay, second to the last question, how long are property management companies required to keep records for communities? Our HOA would like to gather old records from the company we ended our relationship with back in 2019, and also the one before that ended in 2017. So bottom line here, when you ended the relationship, that was your time to get the records, right? They should have turned over all of the association's records to you at that time of transition to the new management company. So going back to them now, very doubtful that they're going to have those records. I mean, you can try, but I'm doubtful they're going to have them. You know, how long should you as an association keep the association's records? We have a great cheat sheet on this topic. Um, it's called Records, Association Records Retention. It's on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com. Just go to our cheat sheets, type in keyword records, and it'll pop right up. It's a sliding scale. Some records we keep forever, like CCNRs and other association documents. Some things and minutes we keep forever. Some things we can throw out after six years. Why six years? Because there's a statute of limitations under a breach of contract of six years. So I encourage you to take a peek at that cheat sheet because it'll give you a definitive answer on what documents you should keep and for how long. Okay, last question for today. 
Is our previous management company required to give me, a homeowner, copy of invoices they paid for our HOA? So I think that the, the key word here is previous management company. So your former management company, they have no obligations to your board or your association. At the time of transition, they should have turned over all records to the association's board and the new management company. If you want to get a copy of an invoice that was paid for your association, you should go to your current board and make a records request. And if they still have it, they need to provide that to you. I don't know what kind of invoice it is. If it's an attorney invoice, they may have to redact it because there might be some confidential legal information in the invoice. But regardless, you would be entitled to see that invoice. Okay, we made great time today. It's 1219. We got through all 14 of our questions, plus a very full hour of hot topics. A few things I want to mention as we close out today is that we have some additional free learning opportunities that are coming up here in the future. First things first, we had over 120 live viewers on Zoom and Facebook Live today. So thank you so much for the great participation and for being here today. Also, don't forget Friday, November 3rd is our next virtual First Friday free call-in where I answer questions for free until all the questions are answered. Um, additional details on this can be found on our website. Questions can be submitted now through the morning of November 3rd at 8.45 a.m. And then we go online on Friday, November 3rd at 9 and answer every question that's submitted. Last but not least, we're starting to get into the holidays. And so in November and December, we have a few changes to the classes that we're teaching. So first things first, in November, instead of having our virtual HOA Academy the third Tuesday in November, we are having it the second Tuesday in November so that we don't interfere with any turkey making and family outings and travel plans of people who might not be able to attend. So in November, our virtual seminar is going to be on Tuesday, November 14th, so the second Tuesday of November. And we have a great class. We're going to be talking about how to be a successful association and what are some qualities of A-plus board members. So that's going to be a really great class for you to attend. Lastly, please consider leaving our firm a Google review. We are sharing the link in the chat right now on how to leave a review. We are always happy to get feedback about these classes and how we're doing as a firm so that we can continue to provide these classes to you and continue to provide interesting subject matter and change up our format if you don't like something or if you're really happy about it, it helps us because then we share that information with the cities that we're partnering with and they see the value of these classes. So we want them to want us to continue doing them. So giving us a, a Google review, letting us know how we do will be shared with them and we would very much appreciate it. So thanks everybody for being here today. Happy Halloween. Don't forget that all these new laws that we talked about today, the five new laws go into effect the day before Halloween on October 30th. Looking forward to seeing you in November and at future events. Thanks again for being here today. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. 